0: Thank you. Once again, good morning or good afternoon or good evening to students and teachers of the Word of God, depending upon the time of the pickup of this, of this broadcast. The broadcasts are sponsored by interested Christians and concerned parties or local churches in your community. And we don't know what time they come on. We have no connection with them. We simply uh, mail out the broadcast and let those Christians who are interested in studying the Word of God present these lessons for the edification of the body of Christ. Our lesson this week is on the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and we'll be discussing this lesson on today's broadcast, uh, running 30 minutes, and then again on next week's broadcast. This constitutes lesson 52 and 53 in the Theological Seminar of the Year, and if you've been with us throughout these many, many weeks and months, you've traversed a great deal of the Word of God and covered a great deal of territory. Uh, you've studied Theology, the study of God the Father, Christology, the study of God the Son, and our present subject is Pneumatology. Lessons About God, the Holy Spirit. These lessons, as they've uh, come out so far, come into 53 or 54 lessons, running 30 minutes apiece, constituting more than uh, 26 hours of study in the Word of God. All right, now we're dealing here with a very important subject this week, and this is the baptism of the Holy Ghost, Uh, perhaps the most malign subject in the entire New Testament, outside of the uh, false teaching of Calvin Burkoff. Daphne, Kuyper, Hodge, and the Puritans, on the five points of Calvinism to it. These two anti-scriptural heresies, called hyper-Calvinism and charismatic movements, rate with hyper-dispensationalism as the main method for stopping people from winning souls to Christ and killing a church deader than a hammer. The charismatic uh, clutch is a little bit different because it has all the appearance of a live church while it's actually a dead church. What they lack in intelligence and rationality and belief and faith in the Bible, they make up for in noise and emotional show and display. And this, of course, is due to the false teaching they have on the baptism of the Holy Ghost. This is a highly controversial issue among evangelicals and theologians, and it is not likely the lesson will be settled by simply studying the Word of God every verse in it, because every man who makes his living off teaching falsely about this doctrine must continue to teach the heresy in order to maintain his income. The, as we said before in previous lessons, the most dangerous point in the life of the believer is the point right after he's saved, where he wishes to yield himself completely, body, soul, and spirit, to the work and leadership and lordship of the Holy Ghost. This is by far the most dangerous time in the new Christian's life, for at this time all the devil has to do to obtain the rest of the Christian's life for his own purposes is to counterfeit the work of the Holy Spirit. So if the very place where the Christian has just been saved and born again and is anxious to yield his life to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit as his guide and leader and director, at this point Satan counterfeits the Holy Spirit and salvages the life for himself. And this accounts why in America, although there are over 500,000 conversions of Jesus Christ every year, not 50 of them never amount to anything in eternity. With 500,000 professions of faith in Jesus Christ, there are perhaps a maximum of 45 to 50 Christians who get rooted and grounded in the faith and make the rest of their lives useful in service for the Lord Jesus Christ. The other 400,000 and so many you can discount, they'll fall by the wayside real quickly. The first vulture to catch them up will be the cults. The uh, Watchtower Society will clean up a lot of them, and of course the literature by Mary Ellen White and Mary Baker A. will clear up the rest of them. Well, they're not caught in a false cult, then they'll be swept away by hyperdispensationalism in the writings of Stan, Bollinger, O'Hare, and Baker. Well, the hyperdispensationalists don't mop them up. The Calvinists are waiting there to clean them out with the Sovereign Grace Book Club and the old Puritan press and all the rest of the 19th and 18th and 17th century nonsense. And if they manage to escape this deadly plague of spirituality-killing heresies, Then, of course, the charismatics will mop them up and make them think that their feelings are associated with Bible doctrine, and they are to judge the book of Acts by their own emotional experiences. We trust our listener will not confuse the Christian, but rather help to explain the most difficult and complex problem. The problem has been used by Satan to divide Christians, while the ministry of the Spirit is actually to draw Christians together. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to draw Christians together, The modern charismatic movement is the most dangerous movement possible because it draws Christians together at the expense of the truth. Now you may as well lay it down and settle it in your heart. Any movement that gets Christians of different denominations together at the expense of the book that the Holy Spirit wrote is satanic. Any movement that causes love among the brethren to draw close to each other and base their experience on their experience with the experience of their experience is a demoniac movement. And this is why these Christians who get concerned with this movement are so dead set on trying to tell you that a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. Have you ever noticed that? The demon-possessed man is the most valuable in insisting that a saved person cannot be demon-possessed. And the rinky-dink Mickey Mouse scholarship for this is that he that is greater than he and he are greater than in the world, which of course doesn't say one thing about possession. The fact that the one and the Christian is greater than he that is in the world means nothing. Per se. Now, if you are yielded the one that is in you, and the one that is in you is the right one, and you are not have enough sense to discern which one is the right one and which is the wrong one, then there is some impact to the statement. But the bare statement that simply because Christ is in you, and he is greater than he is in the world, but therefore you can't be controlled by the devil, is ridiculous in the light of 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Acts chapter 5, and First and Second Timothy. There are saved people being delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh throughout these pastures. And one of them is committing fornication with his father's wife. Now don't be deceived for a minute by this high sounding nonsense that these deemed possessed Christians are always worried about can you be obsessed or oppressed and all that nonsense with unclean spirits. The people who worry the most about the unpardonable sin are the people who come the closest to committing it. And the people who worry about a Christian being possessed are the ones that are possessed. And all this is done, of course, under the under the, the shambles of an alibi, that after all, we're getting all the Christians together and crossing into denominational lines and crossing the line of the establishment or established Christianity. This means absolutely nothing. Satanism crosses the lines of established denominations. So What? astrology crosses the lines of denominational establishment. So what? These people are actually boasting about the fact that they've overthrown sound doctrine and are teaching false doctrine and are trying to think because they're hugging and kissing each other and trying to get together that they're more superior than the Word of God. There are various interpretations or explanations of the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It is the first time the one is filled with the Holy Ghost. That is, you'll find in your Bible that in relation to Pentecost, it is not only spoken of as a a baptism, but as a filling. Many Christians believe they're not the same. The words baptism and filling, of course, are object meaning. Baptism is immersion into something. Filling is putting something into the individual. The theory stems from the story of Pentecost in Acts 2.4, where they were filled with the Holy Ghost and spake in tongues. But that can only be explained by the fact that Pentecost was a Jewish dispensation opening a dispensation to the Jews, where the Holy Spirit was to come and everything occurred simultaneously. That is Pentecost chapter two is the beginning of a period of time. We find this also in Acts chapter eight and Acts chapter ten. And every time anybody speaks with tongue in the Bible, it is never an evidence the baptism of the Holy Ghost except in two places. Although every Christian had been baptized the body of Christ by the Holy Ghost, 1 Corinthians chapter twelve verse 13. The only time any of them speak in tongues is as a sign to unbelieving Israel, First Corinthians 14, 22, Acts chapter 10, verse 44, and Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. Therefore to teach that the baptism of the Holy Ghost can only be spotted by somebody blabbering in mumbo-jumbo if the hype of Mickey Mouse exegesis by a funny bunny type of scholarship that has no more word the, to do with the word of God than with a city almanac. You have no business trying to make the Bible back up your mumble jumble just because you're stupid or lazy or wicked or all three. The only time anybody speaks in tongues in the book of Acts is a, is a sign to Israel. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 2. And when they speak the tongue, they certainly do not speak in unknown tongues. They speak in foreign languages that the people understand, the people who hear them understand. But the fact that the baptism of the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2 is also spoken of as a filling and is also spoken of some other things too, an anointing or an of power, the heretics of our day and age try to pretend that every time a man receives the Holy Spirit, he has to repeat the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Now why these heretics insist this in view of the fact that nothing happened in Pentecost of 34 AD is remarkable. Did you ever stop to think that in Pentecost of 35 A.D., nobody was filled with the Spirit, nobody talked with tongues? And in Pentecost of A.D. 35, nobody was filled with the Holy Ghost, and nobody spoke with tongues? And in Pentecost of A.D. 36, nobody was filled with the Holy Ghost, and nobody talked with tongues? And uh, in, in 36 A.D. and 37 A.D. and 38, 39, 40, and 41, keep on counting your one line of breath, In Pentecost of 1977, nobody was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke with tongues because there had been only one Jewish feast day at Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came, and that is in the book of Acts, Acts 2. Therefore, the man who is trying to get you to back the book of Acts, Acts 2, is trying to get you to backslide and get you to reject Bible doctrine. The outstanding mark, then, of the charismatic heretic is the fact that he rejects sound doctrine, will not study doctrine, will not preach doctrine, and will insist that love should cross doctrinal barriers. That's how you spot the man who has been given up to a reprobate mind. The Bible says in the last day they shall give a heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. First Timothy chapter four, verse one to three. The rejecting of sound Bible doctrine by the lovey dovey hug and kiss your brother crossed in a denominational line and get together on the basis of feeling is a mark of Satanism in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit who wrote the book told you to study and show yourself approved unto God. He told you to to continue in doctrine and you to save yourself from those who hurt you. He told you that the doctrine that you receive from the heart is the one that saves you, not just in the head. And a man who doesn't establish sound doctrine by observing that there is no Christian in Acts chapter 2, there is no plan of salvation preached in Acts chapter 2, and everybody in Acts chapter 2 is a pork abstaining, Sabbath-observing, bearded, temple-worshipping Jew, that man is a reprobate, according to the New Testament. So when a man tries to get you back to Acts 2.38 for the plan of salvation, he is led by Satan. At Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, those who spoke in tongues were circumcised, bearded, pork-abstaining, Sabbath-observing, temple-worshipping Jews. There wasn't a Christian in the bunch, and the word Christian doesn't occur in your Bible, Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Pentecost then was the opening of the dispensation of the Holy Ghost when everything occurred one time simultaneously and never occurred that way again. It is the expense of speaking in tongues, and it is true that this was done on three occasions but it was to publicly testify to Jews who did not believe. You have the speaking in tongues of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to manifest the fact that Peter was telling the truth to Jews of dispersion. You have the speaking in tongues of Acts chapter 19, where the disciples of John the Baptist who come through and have not heard the truth speak to let the Jews in the synagogues in Acts 19 know they've received the truth. And you have Acts chapter 10, 44, the Gentile dogs speaking in tongues as proof to the Jewish believers that they do not have to be baptized in water to receive the Holy Ghost. And if any man speak otherwise, let him be anathema Maranatha, brother." That's the Bible. And that's the Bible in the context in which the pastors appear. And there is a charismatic listening voice who understood one word I said. Because there is no way for a man to go back and reject his infilling of demoniac spirits without denying what happened to him was an infilling of the demon spirit or the Holy Spirit, and these people are afraid to reject their experience because they're afraid if they do, they will commit the unpardonable sin. So they stay in their ignorance and are led by Satan the rest of their life, and the outstanding mark of these people is they can't read the Bible, teach the Bible, understand the Bible, even when they quote the Bible. And when they quote the Bible, they never quote the context, and they never quote the passage as it is in the place in which it occurs. The candlelight, of course, is caught in the same uh, ring around the rosary. Having sinned against God and defiled his conscience, been given up to a reprobate mind, the fool goes up down this country teaching Acts 238 of the plan of salvation. You go to hell quick on Acts 238, and you on the Sermon in the mount. And if you want to go to hell like a greased ball bearing on a grease plank, you just try Acts 238, brother. In Acts 2.38, there's no mention of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no mention of justification or redemption. There's no mention of the new birth. There's no mention of regeneration. There's no mention of spiritual circumcision. And the body of Christ hasn't even been revealed to the man who's doing the preaching. The man who gets you back to apostolic faith and practice in Acts 2 is the worst enemy of your soul ever showed up upon this earth outside the devil himself. The gospel is to be preached in Jerusalem. And there is where the tongue showed up in Acts chapter 2. It was to be preached in Judea and Samaria and to the world of the Gentiles. Pentecost then was a transitional period that lasted several years from John the Baptist to at least Acts chapter 19 when these groups were properly assimilated. And we reject this explanation today for the transition was completed long ago. That is, once you try to go back and try to prove that Acts 2.38 is the plan of salvation, You just make an inane fool out of yourself, friend. Nobody asks what must I do to be saved in Acts 2. That's the question in Acts 16. If you don't believe it, look it up. And some of you folks are getting short-tempered with me and hot-tempered with me because of your bigoted, narrow-minded dogmatism. You ought to grow up and get out of your knee pants and your three-cornered breeches and read a Bible. Nobody in the entire chapter of Acts 2 asks one single word about what must I do to be saved. That question is being brought up in the chapter. Imagine somebody at the standing of a pulpit and teaching Acts 2.38 as the plan of salvation when there is not even a mention of the blood atonement for sinners in the chapter. Imagine that. Now some people believe that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is the second work of grace, but not tongues. Then another bunch believe that, uh, it's the second work of grace that is manifest in the tongues. They stand is base merely from the experience of men like Moody or Torrey or Finney, who had a definite experience apart from their conversion. Their proof text lie in such texts as Acts 815 to 16, which can easily be explained in the light of a transition period. And now the transition period has taken place from all to grace, from the dispensation of the Son from the to the dispensation of the Spirit. Then this is not true. It is very dangerous to attempt to build a doctrine on the experiences of men. The man who tries to build his doctrinal belief in the Word of God on the anointing of the Holy Spirit that Ollie Tory had, or Gleadon Moody had, is a very foolish man. Those men were called for certain jobs and had an anointing of a power that equipped them for a certain job, which you do not have, nor to which you are called. There is no man listening to my voice over this radio station right now There is no man listening to me right now who has ever spoken in tongues in his life who has ever led 500,000 people to Jesus Christ. You're not listening to this broadcast. And there's no danger you will. Charismatic people are not soul-winners. They're what we call retreads. They like to get a hold of new Christians and try to get them saved over. Every major soul-winner in America anointed or not anointed, with an experience or not an experience, was a man who never wasted five minutes talking in tongues or talking about talking in tongues. Now you can read the riot act. Charles G. Finney Dwight L. Moody Billy Sunday Gypsy Smith W. B. Riley Ollie Torrey Wilbur Chapman Mel Carter Lee Scarborough Frank Norris, Oliver Green, Bob Jones, Sr., Dr. DeHaan, Theodore Epp, Charlie Fuller, there isn't one great man of God that God ever greatly used in this country that wasted five minutes for Acts 2.38. And the reason why is when a man that God uses, a man who must be sound in doctrine, when a man is sound in doctrine, he knows perfectly well that you couldn't go to um, to heaven in Acts 2.38 if you stayed up all day and all night. You cannot get the Holy Spirit by being baptized like a circumcised Jew at Pentecost. You go to hell. There are people that believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit refer to the Pentecost that is not applicable to us today. And this is the attitude of many of the larger churches today, whereby they reject the doctrine and continue to ignore the teaching entirely. They reject all outward manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, this is entirely wrong. Now, it is true that prophetical pastors, like Joel 2.28, Matthew 3:11, Mark 1:8, and Luke 3:16 were fulfilled at Pentecost. However, in the light of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, and 1 Corinthians 12:13, we can be absolutely certain that every believer in this age is baptized by the Holy Ghost into the body of Christ. It is the baptism referred to by John the Baptist in Matthew 3:11, and it is available today. This view confuses the anointing of the Spirit with the baptism of the Spirit. And actually, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what puts the man into Jesus Christ. Uh, this passage in uh, First Corinthians chapter 12.13 refers to the Christian being put into Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now, the only doctrinal statement of this subject is First Corinthians 12.13, which says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether it be Jews or Gentiles. The five prophecies of Matthew 3.11, Mark 1, eight, Luke 3.16, were looking forward to Pentecost. The verb tense in 1 Corinthians 12.13, it speaks of a completed experience. That is, every believer is baptized by the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ at the time of his conversion. It is the baptism of the Holy Ghost does today that places the new convert into the body of Christ when he trusts Jesus Christ as his Savior. And this is why it, that nowhere in the epistles is anybody ever exhorted to seek the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You don't have to worry about it. You're not to bother with it. And woe be the man that lies to you and leads you astray by telling you you need to seek the baptism. There isn't one verse in from Matthew to Revelation or from Genesis to Revelation that ever told anybody to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the Jews who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost had that as an automatic promise from Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1, and they didn't have to seek it either. They got it by divine appointment. It was appointed that 50 days after the resurrection, at the Feast of Pentecost, the Jewish feast, the Holy Ghost was going to come and baptize the body of Christ, whether they sought him or not. Therefore the heretic who teaches you to seek the baptism is leading you astray, And trying to get you to believe a doctrine of Satan. The Christian is exhorted to be filled with the Spirit. He's told not to grieve the Spirit. He's told not to quench the Spirit. But nowhere is the Christian ever told to seek the gift of tongues, nor is the Christian ever told to seek the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I'd be glad to mail you a check for $10,000 if you can find any place in an authorized version. Now, uh, these other two Bibles might say, these other new Bibles might say anything. I mean, after all, now, with 54 versions, you can get one version per heresy. So when I say the Bible, you know what Bible I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Protestant Bible, the Reformation. I'm not talking about something that somebody made up to try to prove something that isn't so. You would get a check from $10,000 from the Pensacola Bible Institute, if you can find any verse in the New Testament, that tells a Christian, any Christian, any time, any place, anywhere, to seek the gift of tongues for any reason. It isn't there. When Paul said covet the best gifts, he put the list he put the list in there and put the gift of tongues at the bottom of three lists. First Corinthians chapter twelve. Don't get mad at me. Don't you strip your gears and burn out your clutch plate. Leave it. You an American? I know some of you piece of people are papists and pagans and communists. You haven't got enough guts to read it. If you didn't even have the sense to understand it, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to you Americans. Read it. You can still read, can't you? You can still buy a Bible, can't you? You still got freedom to buy a Bible and read it, don't you? Well, if you do, read it. The gift of tongues is the last gift in three lists of gifts given in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. There's a $10,000 reward for any heretic in the world who can find one verse of scripture where God told anybody to seek the gift of tongues? For any reason. And another ten thousand, Sonny, you can get rich. Another ten thousand where God told anybody to seek the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You can't find it from Genesis to Revelation in the Word of God. And if you could, you could pick up twenty thousand dollars tomorrow night. And the reason why you can't pick the money is because you can't find it because it's not there. Yes, I heard so and so say that he's as big a blasphemer as you are. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 1-4 is a Jewish feast, an experience to mark the initiation of a new dispensation, and there are four facts we learn from first point Corinthians twelve, thirteen that cannot be denied by the man who believes his Bible and reads what he believes in the context in which it appears. Never forgetting, of course, that a text without a context is a pretext. You can make the Bible teach anything, but you cannot make it teach anything but the truth if you take the words as they stand, written where they are, in the context where they appear, and take them at face value to mean what they say and say what they mean. I'll grant you that a jackleg can take uh, Acts 19 out of context and say, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And make you think that a born again saved Baptist has to have a second experience after he's saved. But you did that by taking it out of the context there are no saved Baptists in Acts chapter 19. As a matter of fact, the men who are asked the question are not even saved. You see what I mean, Bean? So there are four facts about 1 Corinthians 12 13 that stand out in the context in which it appears which cannot be denied by the rational Christian who is not demon-possessed or led by unclean spirits. And the outstanding mark of the demon-possessed Christian, of course, is his rejection of the clear, plain statements of the Word of God in the context in which they stand. Number one, every believer has been baptized, quote, by one spirit are we all baptized, past tense, in the one body, and have been made past tense to drink into one spirit. The first thing, then, is every believer has been baptized. The fact that he may not have gone off his nut like some of you did, and his nervous system may not have come apart like some of yours did, and the fact that he may not have blibber-blabbered and jumber-jabbered and tried to get something out of Christianity he couldn't get because he was disobeying God, and the fact that he didn't lumber-blubber, hubber-gobble, flubber-gobble, because of a full gospel businessman, he wanted to stay in the liberal church where he was. Oh, yeah, honey, a lot of things go on these days. Has nothing to do, as they say up in Carolina, with nothing. The truth is, every believer has been baptized by the Holy Ghost. Number two, the experience is in the past tense, it is a completed transaction. Number three, the function of that baptism was to place the believer into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you find in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, and John chapter 17. This, then, is what unifies the believer. It isn't some mumbo-jumbo and tongues that unifies believers. It isn't denominations getting together on the base of a hobblely hobbly flubber blah hostile a sham um bow-tie, spit it out your mouth. That isn't it. The thing that unifies the believer is the fact the Holy Spirit has put them all into the body of Christ, canceling all differences of race, color, or politics. If any man is in Christ is a new creature, in Christ was either Jew or Gentile, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. The unity in the body of Christ has nothing to do with tongues, for the people who talk in tongues don't understand each other half the time, and even disagree with each other as to how or why or when they're speaking in tongues, and some of them were smart enough to know that some of themselves are a bunch of hypocrites. That isn't unity. That's confusion. That's babble. That's the confusion of tongues. Our unity, then, in Christ lies in the fact that we're all in one body of the Lord Jesus Christ, because, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the Holy Spirit who wrote the book and preserved this has placed us into the spiritual body of the Lord Jesus Christ. On our next broadcast, we'll discuss the baptism of Ephesians 4, verse 5, We'll also discuss the baptism of Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 11, which are wrongly applied by the Camelites to teach water baptism, for water baptism occurs nowhere within ten chapters of the chapter in either direction. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.